Tim Haig Reads Books, presented by Tim Haig. Fifty years a star, gracefulness incarnate, irresistible to women, vain and arrogant perhaps, but with so much to boast of. But enough about Tim. Mick Jagger has lived his life in the public glare, and yet he remains an enigma. He never much liked doing drugs. He was a wonderful friend to both Brian Jones and Keith Richards. He was admittedly a lousy husband, but a terrific father. The children all adore him. There's much more to Jagger than meets the eye. Philip Norman is a past master of the rock biography. Buddy Holly, Neil Sedaka, The Stones, The Beatles, John Lennon. He first interviewed Mick Jagger in 1965 and knows the period intimately. In his new book, he turns his forensic brilliance on the quintessential rock star. About a year ago, I was in a queue in a post office uh, reading Philip Norman's wonderful biography of John Lennon, as it happened. And there was a little 10-year-old girl, about 10, in front of me in the queue. And she looked at me really intently for about a minute and said, Who's John Lennon? And I sort of whimpered with... Uh, with dismay and, and incredulity. Because, of course, for people of my generation, John Lennon is about the most famous person in history. And if it's not him, it's Mick Jagger, which brings us to Philip Norman's new book, which is Mick Jagger. Um, Philip, uh, hello. Thank you for uh, talking to us about this. It's a, it's a huge book. Not as huge as John Lennon. I learned my lesson with Lennon. This is um, about a third as... <clears throat> third shorter than the John Lennon book. Yes, John Lennon one was big. And I, I don't suppose Keith Richards would think it was big, would he? He tends to downgrade the size of everything. Size yeah. of everything. Yes. Um, the, the, the interesting thing about Mick Jagger, and, and which comes across very, very much in this book, is that a, a lot of the facts, a lot of the details um, are well known. I mean, some of them are extremely famous stories. But the interpretation of them has always been has always been wrong. You 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 want to give a a, a sense of Jagger the man um, that that is completely at odds with really his his image. Absolutely, um, he, Jagger was told at quite a young age by the Stones' first manager, Andrew Oldham, "If you pre pretend to be bad, you'll get rich." And for the last fifty years, he's been pretending to be bad. And that's what thrills everybody. And the surprising uh, part of this study, this book for me, <clears throat> is that Jagger is quite a decent chap. Uh, this may be disappointing to a large number of people. He has these sort of quite nice bourgeois values, which were passed on by his dad, uh, who was a gym teacher in, in Kent. And most of what people think they know about Mick Jagger is simply um, the myth and the, the reality. Um, it, is much more interesting, but it's not as scandalous. And uh, <clears throat> the strange thing about him is that he is so intent on playing the part of Mick Jagger, the role of Mick Jagger, um, that he doesn't actually admit to having a past. Um, yeah, you say that he, he pretends to amnesia every time anybody yes. asks him. Any. He says he even says he doesn't remember which prison he went to in London. It was Brixton Prison. Nobody would forget going to Brixton Prison. It, that must be untrue, must not it? Absolutely. Um, but it's all part of wanting to be young and current and with it and everything. But what the effect of this is that he cancels out his own career. And his own career is full of really extraordinary achievements, um, which people have forgotten about because he just doesn't talk about it. Um, for instance... 
the, the infamous Altamont Pop Festival. The mythology is that Jagger was extremely sort of narcissistic and selfish and didn't care um, when uh, a spectator was stabbed to death by Hell's Angels. And this is an event that's often regarded as the end of the 60s. The end of the 60s, bloody ruin and everything. The, the, the hippie dream collapses into bloody ruin. And Jagger's on the stage prancing around singing sympathy for the devil. And, and there's even a suggestion that he summoned up dark forces which somehow resulted in the death of this innocent spectator. He wasn't singing sympathy for the devil. He was surrounded by homicidal thugs, hell's angels. Um, and he showed extreme bravery that day. He finished his performance and against that, huge obstacles. It wasn't even the Stones' fault, was it? They hadn't hired the Hells Angels. They hadn't hired the Hells Angels. The Grateful Dead's gig. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't a Rolling Stones concert. It was a festival organised by the Grateful Dead. It was meant to be the Western version of Woodstock. Um, and Jagger uh, behaved with extreme, I mean, incredible self-possession and a lot of bravery. There's the moment when he reads a poem in Hyde Park, uh, the memorial uh, for Brian Jones, he gets a quarter of a million people to listen to a poem by Shelley. That's pretty Read good. Read by a man in a dress. A uh, man, well, actually, it was. It, was a, it wasn't it a dress, but it was, it was awfully frilly. To, it was supposed to be worn by Sammy, Sammy Davis Jr., if you can believe it. Um, but there again, that's an amazing achievement, uh, which he just doesn't acknowledge. He doesn't seem to care about his own amazing career because he just wants to get on to the next thing all the time. What people have understood about him is that he is fantastically shrewd. Um, you know, he, he was this rock and roll rebel and he's, he's madly cavorting on the stage, but pretty well from the outset, he, he could see the angles and he, he, he understood the business better than pretty well any of, the other, of his contemporary performers. Yes, he was, um, when fame overtook him, he was studying economics at the London School of Economics, so, you know, the best economic school in one of the best in the world. Um, he was always very interested in money and uh, um, very interested in things like the rate of exchange, pound to dollar. It didn't stop the stones being exploited the way most young musicians were exploited then, including the Beatles. But at a certain point, he took control and never really gave up control. And he became really the boss of the Stones. He, yes, he didn't really have any managing director. challenges. Keith Richards, of course, more or less abdicated, um, either by not being assertive enough when he was young and then being completely out of it, and then resented it afterwards. Yes. Now, you know, if the Stones had been left in Keith's charge, they would have uh, broken up before the 70s. This was the most unstable band, you would have thought. This was not a band that was going to last 10 years, let alone 50 Especially years. with Brian Jones, because it was his band originally. Brian Jones's band originally. Um, and, you know, a band where one someone dies, uh, two of the members go to jail, uh, two more resign in extreme bitterness. You would think this is not a, a long-lasting band. In the end, it's mixed determination that keeps them going. If it had been left to Keith, they would have packed up years and years ago. Keith and Mick is, is, is always regarded as the big partnership. But was it inevitable? You'd have expected Brian Jones, before he um, fell into the, the real debauchery, to, to have a great deal more uh, input into, well, the songwriting in particular. And yet he didn't. Well, it was Brian's band. Brian auditioned for the other members of the band. He knew Mick and Keith already from the Ealing Blues Club. Um, and Brian's instrumental virtuosity, he could pick up almost any instrument and play it almost immediately, um, was what they were about for a long, long time. The dynamic changed when Andrew Oldham, the manager, 
saw how much extra money there was to be made by writing songs like John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And because he happened to be sharing a flat with Mick and Keith, it was Mick and Keith who got given the job of writing the songs. Brian couldn't do that. And Brian couldn't sing, really. Uh, did very, very few vocal backings. And that was the point when Brian started to be marginalized and pushed out. And he was always, you know, very, very mischievous and paranoid anyway, and always said the others were plotting against him. Um, they, they didn't really, but it just became a, a matter of practicality. Well, you, you, that's one of the points you make, isn't it? That far from plotting against uh, Brian Jones, Mick Jagger went to great lengths to, to look after him and to keep him in the band. And uh, when, when Keith Richards was at his lowest ebbs, Mick was there like a brother, said Keith yes, Richards. Yes, yes. Now, you know, this is, this, is the, the, this is the very good side of Mick Jagger. Um, and yes, the, the, Beatle, the Beatles were, not, were, were far less nice than the Stones. You know, the Beatles sacked Pete Best, the drummer, and that was it. And, and, he, and even then they made uh, Brian Epstein do the sacking. Exactly. You know, they, they, were, they were not, or they, they weren't that nice, you know, when it came to that sort of thing. Whereas when someone got dropped from the Stones, Ian Stewart, the piano player, they all liked him very much, but he had to be dropped because he looked, it was said he looked too normal. He stayed with them. He was always there playing backup piano on stage. And Mick had real concern for Brian. Brian, he said it was like performing with a, with a wooden leg because Brian, in the end, couldn't even play the guitar. But they didn't, they didn't ditch him. It was eventually worked out that he would resign with, with dignity or would leave the band with dignity. Uh, and then, of course, died in a swimming pool, which is in less a, dignified. Well, a horrible sort of death by misadventure caused by drugs and alcohol. But again, you know, the Stones were absolutely un, not implicated in that in any way or, or, or culpable. Let's talk about a bit about what Mick did get away with. And I'm thinking in particular of that amazing stage dancing, which and nobody really thinks it's good dancing in the world, I think. And yet we accept it completely. And he is a fantastically graceful man. I once saw him at a, on TV at a, a, an award ceremony where the step collapsed as he was going up. And he just gracefully bounced off it in a way that you and I would have fallen over on our face. Mick just slid. He glid, glided up to the uh, stage. And he's, he's just fantastically graceful. And yet this amazing dancing. And similarly, when he's singing that, that absurd New Orleans uh, accent, you know, uh, come on, mama. And, and, and the, uh, how does he get away with it? Well, I don't know. It, it, originally, he sounded a bit like Chuck Berry, and his articulation was quite clear. Um, but he's since sort of taken to singing a language all of his own bears no resemblance to any blues singer. It's partly sort of Blanche Dubois from Streetcar Named Desire. It's got a bit of the, of the maid who's always beating Tom in the Tom and Jerry cartoon. Yes, it does. Um, ridiculous voice. And if you listen, I mean, the, the vocals are never that sort of prominent in a Rolling Stones They'd, song. They're always sort of part of the instrumentation. Uh, it's not really the vocals. It's, and when he sings something like Angie, it's cr cringe-making, really. The ridiculous stretching of vowels. Except I think it's one of my Desert Island discs, Angie. I, I, love, I play it all the time. But there it is, you know. It, it, it is still captivating. And uh, um, the movement, originally when he was on stage, he used to do the sort of Chuck Berry duck walk. Um, but then it did get very sexy. Um, and after it stopped being sexy, then it became a, a feat of athletics for two hours. He's like doing a calisthenics class, really like his dad, who was a gym teacher. And he, we, we were talking about um, uh, things that we still listen to. I have to say, I, I still think of the Stones as a singles band. 
rather than an absolutely album, not album an album band. band. And all this sort of la you know stuff about Exile on Main Street, you know, Exile on Main Street produced sort of very. It was very heavily criticised at the time, and it's again quite absurd that they're in France and not one single whisper of France gets into this. They're singing sort of Appalachian mountain music and they're recording it in Villefranche. It's a good thing not to get France in, though. Bill Wyman's Just We Own Rockstar was a terrible record, even though it was a Except hit. Except that, you know, Bill has a number one single and Mick never has. On his own, yes. Yeah. It's another thing about the, the Stones singles, it, and which I, I had not really noticed, is how long it took them to get going with, with really good records. The first seven or eight, there were a couple that were all right, but until Satisfaction... There were not, you know, and the Beatles had a, a, a classic with their second record, you know, Please Please Me, and, and then the fourth one is She Loves You. Uh, uh, the Beatles hit the ground running as, as far as, as songwriting is concerned. The Stones took a long time to get into their stride. They did. I mean, they were, <clears throat> they were launched uh, as a pop band. They originally wore little check jackets and black pencil slacks, you know, and they were trying to sort of do what other people were doing. It did take them time to find their own sort of line. And I think it only really happened with the, the end of the 60s with the kind of stripped down sound of sort of brown sugar and those. Um, they, were start, they started really, uh, again, it was the instrumentation. I think their album, Aftermath, can, can take on the Beatles. Um, but it's all Brian Jones playing the marimba, playing all these instruments, you know. And then, of course, there was their Satanic Majesties, which didn't take on the Beatles, which was terrible. That was, you know, uh, they were always sort of trying to keep up with the Beatles, and that was meant to be their Sergeant Pepper. And it's only when they sort of find their own line, which is really down to Keith so much, you know, those chords, that those amazingly simple chord solos, which he kind of took on from Buddy Holly, which really make the classic Stones albums of the early 70s, the Stone singles of the early 70s. Let's talk a little bit about sex, because uh, Mick as a, a priapic sex god is a theme of the book and is a theme of his life. I, I don't think he, anybody uh, arguing that his decency would be able to get away from the fact that he's, he's been around a bit. Um, yes, and his treatment of women has not always been very nice. Nice at the or, beginning, though. They all <clears> nice like at the beginning. beginning, exactly. Before the sort of carapace of stardom hardens around him. Um, his, I talked to his first two, well, first serious girlfriend, and then his uh, former fiancée, Chris, Chrissy, then Chrissy Shrimpton, Jean Shrimpton's sister. They said he was very sweet, very unaffected, very, very generous. Uh, Cleo Sylvester, his first girlfriend, said he walked all the way back to Chelsea from the West End spent all his money on buying her a box of chocolates. That doesn't sound like the Mick, perhaps, that we know. Um, it's really when he starts playing the role of the star, and the star, this particular star, who is sort of rather acts like royalty, who never gives anything away about himself. There's nothing mysterious there, really, but he does have this way of just being very bland, uh, very non-committal, very cool. It's coolness, really. One of the things that you... You, you make clear is, is, is the way, for instance, he, he pressed Marsha Hunt into having a baby with him. He, he, he proposed it and, 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 and was keen on it, but he'd left her by the time she, she had the baby. Yes, uh, and she couldn't really understand, I mean, why he was so keen, according to her, to have a baby together. And by the time the baby is born, yet, and that he doesn't really want to take responsibilities, eventually compelled to do that. Um, but in the end, of course, the, uh, grows up to be uh, this lovely young woman called Caris, who is extremely intelligent as well as beautiful. And of course, then he's a proud dad. Well, again, you say that he, he, all his children adore him. He, he can't have been a bad 
father. He Absolutely must been, not. But, or is it just that everybody falls in love with Mick Jagger? Uh, not everybody at all. No, and he made, made a lot of men extremely sort of anti him right from the beginning, particularly men. But he, if you think about the record of uh, rock stars' children and how screwed up they tend to get. Oh, well, Keith how, Richards' first son. You, yes. You tell some hair-raising stories in, in the Stones book and in this one. Because they become sort of parents. They have to look after the, um, the, you know, the, the miscreant dad or miscreant mum. Um, and all, all seven of Jagger's children, you know, he's given them all time and attention and they all do adore him. And that is a great achievement. With the sexuality is, is, is the paradox, though, of the, of the, the effeminacy and the, the, the macho strutting that he manages to, to, to straddle. He manages to be both at the same time. It's funny, yes, he's the king and queen of rock. Yes. And uh, it, it is, it, it's sort of like those um, great ballet dancers like Nijinsky and Nureyev. Mm. Um, who do embody both, you know, they are fey, extremely fey, and yet they have these overstuffed cod pieces and they're eyeballing the ballerinas lustfully all the time. And it, that is his persona, really. It is sort of the Nijinsky of rock. We said earlier on that a lot of the events and, and, and the, the stories are pretty well known here. But and how do you set about compiling all of that and, and, and building it into a coherent narrative? Is it, is it a question of going and tracking down everybody who knew him? Is it you know, trawling the archives? How do you set about doing this? It is hideously hard work, um, you know, making a real book, a literate book, out of a subject like pop music. And it is literate. It made me laugh as well. That's good. Well, I, you know, and a lot of these stories are very, very funny. Um, and this is horribly hard work. Um, and... I mean, how do you write a good English sentence containing the words, the record went to number three? No. You have to work it in, sub-clauses, you know, or he loved the album, or they went on to, you know, they're always going on to. That's the, and we've the, all read books like that. Yes, and most of them are like that. And either too much information, either too reverential or too, uh, too, you know, too flippant. American writers tend to be too reverential. British ones tend to be too flippant. Uh, conveying an in, a true interest and passion about the subject without being ridiculous, conveying what was going on in the world at the same time, conveying what the fashions were like and everything else around the music and how the music influenced the fashions, all that. Really, really hard work. Two things, really. The first is that the Beatles and the Stones are essentially one story. The interconnections between the two are so many that once I'd written the Beatles book, I had a lot of ammunition for a Stones book. Uh, once I'd written the John Lennon book, I knew a lot more about Mick Jagger because they were very good friends, and in fact, they were extremely good friends. You wouldn't think, that, you know, they're very unlike, but they were they got on very, very well. And the other thing you need is luck. Now, I do believe in something called biographer's luck, and you always hope you'll have this kind of luck on this kind of project. Uh, when I was doing John Lennon, um, I happened to see purely by chance one Sunday afternoon on the Antiques Roadshow that I was only looking at for five minutes, just to kill five minutes, uh, a woman had got some uh, letters from a fan to John Lennon's Aunt Mimi, the woman who brought him up. And these were wonderful letters, and only by chance did I see them on the Antiques Roadshow and then managed to get in touch with the woman who had them. The woman had written as a teenager to Aunt Mimi and got these wonderful letters back about John. That's biographer's luck. I had a bit of that in the Jagger book. Um, you, you do want to talk to people, but you want to talk to people who haven't talked before because people who have talked, the well-known figures in the 
in the pantheon of these uh, stories uh, tend to polish their anecdotes and they change all the time. It's finding people who have never talked, who didn't want to talk, um, and you have to get them to trust you and you have to keep the trust. And then to that, you bring your novelists' uh, talents, because of course you uh, were, you, you are a novelist and you were, you were cited by Granter as one of the, those 20 best young British novelists with Ian McEwan and, and Salman Rushdie and, and, I was, and Martin I was. Amos and that crowd. And then I was immediately waylaid into writing a non-fiction book one after the other. But actually, fiction writing is what I really like to do. And musicals now. Yes, I wrote a musical about Elvis Presley a couple of years ago, three or four years ago, uh, which toured the UK tw twice, in fact, or toured the British Isles twice. I've now written one about Neil Sedaka, who was one of the great pioneer singer-songwriters, whose story is extraordinary. He, 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 gave, he made very happy records, but his career had great periods of despair and humiliation, even when he was wiped out by the by the Beatles, his career was obliterated by the Beatles in the 60s, and he fought his way back again. It took about 10 years to do it. And that's opening in the West End. Tell me it's called year. Laughter in the Rain. It's called Laughter in the Rain. How did I know? <laughs> but I think it should be called uh, Is This the Way to Amarillo, because that's Britain's favourite pop song uh, today, you know, all these years later. Is it really? Yeah. E even despite Peter Kay? Well, because, because, of, of, Peter because Kay. of Peter Kay. Yes. Yeah. Well, the book here is Mick Jagger by Philip Norman, it's published by HarperCollins at £20, and I hope it does jolly well for you. Thank you very much. Thoroughly entertaining read. That was Tim Haig Reads Books. Tim Haig Reads Books is a Green Shoot production. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com, and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com. <laughs>